Welcome to episode 367 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and the views we're going to express here do not reflect those of our institutions, our clients, our friends, our family, even our pets. And joining me for the news roundup are uh, Nick Weaver, a, a longtime favorite who teaches computer science at Berkeley, uh, Jordan Schneider, uh, China Tech Analyst at the Rhodium Group, host of the excellent China Talk podcast, and Jordan uh, your most recent interview with Dave Itell about uh, how good China is at cyber attack was terrific. And of course, it had featured alums of the Cyber Law podcast, so I'm particularly fond of it. And for the first time, Michael Ellis, uh, who's held senior legal positions uh, at Congress, the White House, the intelligence community, and is the founder and principal of Nautilus PLC, calling in from New Hampshire. Michael, good to have you for the first time. Thanks. Long-time listener, first-time panelist. All right. Uh, and I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and the host and chief provocateur for today's program. So lots of news uh, of the kind of small ball variety, I would say, coming out of President Biden's trip to Europe. Nick, the Putin-Biden summit was probably the main event, and something happened at it something came out of it what what do you make of that it's really hard to tell because the problem is the russia problem is the ransomware problem and they're unable and unwilling to crack down on the local criminals so the, the president biden said a few things that when you string them together sound kind of ominous. He said, we have a really good cyber attack capability. It would, you'd be pretty unhappy, wouldn't you, Vladimir, if your oil pipelines stopped working? And we ought to agree on not attacking critical infrastructure. I don't know whether he intended to string those together to make it sound like a nice little pipeline you got here, Vladimir, but uh, it comes out that way. And certainly any Russian would understand it that way. I don't know whether threats matter to Putin. I think he's heard them before. The idea, he seems to have taken up the idea that there ought to be a consultation process among experts in the U.S. and Russia. So we'll see something coming out of this. I don't know what. Yeah, and it's really hard to tell. I think we should be satisfied with a specter of happiness on this that we didn't have. We no longer have a president who would have just given away the show. All right. So China was off stage, but both the G7 and NATO statements with, I'm sure, a significant push from President Biden kind of snarked on China. Jordan, did it? Did they break any new ground? Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to put this in the context of like where you could expect the G7 or NATO to be even two years ago talking about China issues. I don't think Tom Cotton necessarily would be happy with these communiques, but at the same time, they're talking about Xinjiang. They're talking about Hong Kong. We had a call into the invest. We call we had a call for an investigation into the origins of COVID nineteen. There was a, a call for peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait. These are serious. These are still serious sort of bullet points for NATO and the G seven to to come to agreement to come to an agreement on. And I think it's a real reflection of what Biden has been able to do with the sort of latent frustration 
frustration with China's behavior on the world stage that in the final two years of the Trump administration, the parts of the administration were coming to the realization that like, oh, al- actually allies are kind of useful if you're trying to push on these issues. And now, and, and China has laid the groundwork so well for this sort of me- this meeting of the minds on its behavior internationally that I don't want to ascribe a ton of credit to the Biden team for just being able to get to get these sorts of document outs. But I think it's a real reflection of where the world is that it's not really as scary as it would have been or as it, it wasn't nearly a bridge too far to come out to come out with the statement the statement that yeah I, that that makes sense to me is that uh, China had had so screwed up the, its international image by saying well, we don't actually need any of you anymore we're just going to take what we want that was the attitude for much of the toward the end of the Obama administration and certainly into Trump that it was not hard but still worth doing to rally allies to say things that they knew the Chinese would not want to hear and you can't underestimate how much fear there is in Europe about saying things that the Chinese don't want to hear so the Biden had a pretty good hand and he played it comp- yeah. there's a really interesting sort of tea leaf reading that's been going on in the past few weeks of if China's global rhetoric is going to change at all. They had a big state council summit and some uh, Fudan uh, University professor lectured them on how China should improve its sort of outward interaction with the rest of the world. And the funniest thing is like at one point they said the word like China should be kai, which is like kind of cute or like adorable on the world stage. But at the same time, I think the sort of roots of wolf warrior dumb run very deep and a sort of superficial makeover is not necessarily going to change the, the deep-rooted instincts of of Xi leadership, which led to this lashing out on the world stage. And so even, even if there is like a slightly toned down Twitter rhetoric of the ambassador to Pakistan not trying to pick fights with, with NATO every other day, it, it, it seems hard for me to envision a situation in the near term, like year or two, where you really see an about face of of CCP leadership realizing that they've aligned the rest of the world against them and uh, all of a sudden kind of turning uh, and say, oh, wait, we actually have to treat these treat these countries better and, and understand their interests and work around them as opposed to kind of doing what we're going to do. And when we butt heads, like it's kind of OK, because then that makes us look cool domestically. And that's what it's all about in the long run. Yeah, uh, maybe there's something to be said for having allies that, that constantly have to chivy and press and lean on just to get them to say the, the most obvious things because China doesn't have that. And so they just say what's obvious in Beijing because they don't have any allies to worry about. Uh, and then when it doesn't play well on the world stage, they're surprised. But we get to, to try these ideas out in, say, the European Union talks that the U.S. had and discover all the things that won't work on the world stage. Michael, I didn't think that the Biden EU talks, they they were in some respects the most substantive, the thing that the president did, but I'm not persuaded he got much for for the effort. No, even the most substantive aspect of it may not have been very much substance. It, this struck me, uh, the joint statement from the Biden trip to Brussels and his meetings with the EU uh, struck me as when you need to put out a statement on an issue but there's no real agreement on the underlying issue. So what do you do? You create working, you have some very high level general language about the, the need to strengthen relationships. So and now we're gonna have a US-EU Trade and Technology Council. We've got 10 working groups to study the problem. So lots of flights between Brussels and DC, 
a lot of cocktail receptions. We'll see if they actually come up with any concrete accomplishments. So they've got some language in there about strengthening legal certainty for transatlantic flows of personal data, but it's not clear how they're going to do that. And, and the proof will be in the pudding. Now, uh, a few weeks ago, there was some news out of the European Commission that they put out new standard contractual clauses that companies can use, which may, may prove a path forward for at least some U.S. companies that want to move data back from Europe if they're the ones that are at least at, at lower risk of receiving government because these new, new clauses have a, what they call a risk-based approach for companies to, to talk about how they'll never, ever receive a 50702 order and, and therefore the European data protection authorities can, can be satisfied with their, with their data flows. Yeah, that, so that has the value of salvaging a lot of companies' trade, but it completely screws U.S. intelligence and our counterterrorism effort. Because if you've never used 702 to get data from a company, you probably don't care where its data is located if you're doing intelligence. The underlying issue isn't solved yet. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought the fact that the... There is some rumor that the, the... pressed a particular agenda or idea on the EU, but he apparently got nowhere with it because all the leaks that are coming out of the meetings suggest that everybody's waiting for the U.S. to make more concessions on what their law will be. That's not likely to happen. And so we're just going to continue to drift along, I fear, with Gradually, companies that have a lot of data in Europe waking up that they're never going to get a resolution here and saying, okay, let's move our data to Europe. Yeah, I think that's going to be, that may be the case for the big tech companies like Facebook may may reach that conclusion. If you're a company like, again, GM or consumer product company, if you're uh, you know, Procter & Gamble, you're probably not worried about getting a FISA order and you can probably keep moving your data across the Atlantic. But for the, the kinds of information that the U.S. intelligence community cares about using 702 to, to collect, that's where there, there's just not likely to be a, a resolution, I think, between the current unrealistic European view of, of whether the U.S. needs to change its surveillance laws and where the U.S. government is. Yeah, and unfortunately, I just I, my, my fear here is to move Europe off of that position is going to be hard because they've got to judgment from the court. Uh, And so no one wants to stand up and say, we need to override the court, which is really probably the right answer. Um, Except they figure out a way to do it for their own intelligence agencies, right? That's the, always the the rub. They find workarounds when it's their surveillance authorities at issue. When it's the, uh, when it's the Americans, suddenly they're helpless and it's a constitutional issue and there's no possible solution other than a change in U.S. law. Well, but the court did it itself uh, to enable member states to continue to flout the rules that were announced by the court. And so they could say, well, we just, we're just following the court's jurisprudence on this. But yeah, it is not going to, we're not going to get a resolution unless the U.S. turns this into a crisis, which I think they should, but I don't see any appetite for that coming out of this administration. And that means they're signing up for less counterterrorism capability every year for the rest of their term. Yeah, well, and it won't just be counterterrorism capability, right? I mean, it's a whole it's a whole raft of intelligence collection that will be signing up for less and less of. But you know, this is the trade, I guess, that they're making. You know, Jordan spoke about the little bit of progress they're seeing on getting the EU to have some tougher on China language. But in exchange, they're, they're not going to ask on these kinds of data privacy issues and intelligence collection capabilities. And I think escalation in terms of making the pain more visible to the Europeans is what you'll have to do to get any results. Until they stop seeing the fruits of intelligence sharing, they won't change their... Well, and Brussels never will because Brussels is not a recipient of most of that intelligence sharing. And so they just 
they have no interest in protecting it. It's a sad commentary on how power is divided up between the member states and Brussels. All right, well, why don't we, why don't we turn to a new regulatory issue that's coming out of the colonial pipeline uh, matter. TSA is, has already taken one step and is now apparently on the verge of another couple of steps that really move it from a public-private partnership to a regulated approach, a regulatory approach to cybersecurity in the pipeline business. Michael, what, what's TSA up to? Yeah, I, I think they're, they're just going farther down the wrong road here of pursuing a pipeline-specific cybersecurity agenda when the real answer is that it has to be done holistically across all of critical infrastructure. I mean, TSA has, has very little expertise here. I think there was a, a GAO report that they had all of six people working on pipeline security a year or two ago. And that's all security. Yeah, all security, not just cybersecurity, all, all pipeline security, six, six people for TSA. So this agency is not is, is not the A-team when it comes to, to cybersecurity. And you're going to have one standard that TSA imposes on pipeline companies, another one that FERC imposes on power plants, yet a different one that the financial regulators impose on financial companies. It's going to be a mess unless there is a uh, one uniform regime here. Yeah, I'm less in that camp, partly because I guess I, I see what I think are the the threads that led to this. A lot of that criticism of TSA, too much regulation from different places, comes from the Commerce Committee on the Hill, which you know wants to have jurisdiction back over cybersecurity and pipelines and isn't likely to get it without disrespecting TSA. TSA doesn't have a lot of uh, cybersecurity expertise, but they're borrowing it wholesale from CISA, which is another DSA, DHS agency. So I'm not completely convinced that this is a fool's errand, and it is inevitable after what happened with Colonial. Yeah, it, it, inevitable, I agree. And in fact, you mentioned the, the Hill jurisdictional angle to this. It looks like there's legislation brewing in both chambers that, according to some press reports, Senator Warner, Rubio, and Collins have legislation that they may roll out text of as early as this week for a, a national disclosure requirement, again, across all of critical infrastructure, as well as federal agencies and contractors that would require disclosure within 24 hours to CISA. And there's some hint of liability protections for companies as part of that bill, but it's not clear exactly what that is or how that's going to work. And there is also some, some press speculation that the House Homeland Security Committee is working on something, too. So this is moving forward in Congress. It's one of, probably one of the few areas where there's still bipartisan cooperation on the Hill. So, yep. Yeah, well, bipartisan is as long as you there's bipartisan protection by the Homeland Security Committee of Homeland Security Committee jurisdiction and by Commerce Committee members of Commerce Committee jurisdiction. That is a kind of bipartisanship. All right. So the other thing that uh, Colonial continues to drive is stories about ransomware attacks and uh, speculation is what is happening in the cyber insurance market, which went through a process of being a relatively sleepy area and then suddenly enjoying a boom and then suddenly enjoying a massive expansion of claims. Nick, what's the outcome likely to be? The outcome is likely to be that subset of insurance is going to collapse. You don't, you can only write insurance when risks are fairly stochastic. So 
person A, person B, person C has basically independent chance of getting hit by a car or whatever. But with the ransomware model and software in general, the risks are tightly correlated. If A gets hit, B, C, and D are also likely to get hit. And that makes something generally uninsurable long term. It's like writing hurricane insurance only in New Orleans. You have to spread out risk in order for that to work. And let me just stop you. I, I, I think the most obvious example of a uh, problem with spreading out the risk is if the ransomware gangs have access to, to the insurance company's list of people they have insured and they can go systematically attacking them, there is no way that insurance company has properly spread the risk. Or And in fact, that happened because the problem is also the insurance companies have been making it worse. So in many cases, what happens is somebody gets hit. They have insurance. They tell their insurance company. Their insurance company says, here's the negotiator we've had good luck working with. Work with this negotiator to pay the ransom and we will reimburse the ransom because it's going to be cheaper for us as the insurance company in this incident to pay the ransom rather than pay the cost of recovery without paying the ransom. Which doesn't work. Correct. And so this creates a horrible incentive structure. And there's been reports that at least one ransomware gang broke into an insurance company to find out who the insured people are so that they know who to target, who will pay, because they get told to pay by the insurance company that has the negotiators that they're already used to working with. So this would explain what this would explain the statistic that I thought was quite shocking, which is that 80% of the organizations that pay a ransom have to pay one again. They get attacked again, sometimes by the same people. Necessarily have to pay again, but they definitely get hit again. So what ends up happening is the first time you get hit, the ransomware nukes your backup. And as a consequence, because your backups were designed for disaster recovery or incident recovery, they're always online. Ransomware recovery needs basically offline air-gapped backups. And so what happens is after the first time they get hit, IT goes through, restructures their backup system entirely, and so it wouldn't surprise me if 80% of those that get hit, paid the ransom get hit again. It would surprise me if 80% of those paid the ransom again. Okay, Jordan, China, this is a little bit, was about two weeks ago, but China has a data security law out and it's gone final. And some data security privacy rules for autonomous vehicles. And it's gotten some very suspicious coverage and some people who say, hey, it's just a data protection law like the European Union. What's ground truth? My my vote is more on the latter. I think what uh, the Chinese government is responding to is fundamentally the same, most of the same push and pull factors that the U.S. and probably more germanely the EU are, which is that companies have way more data and way more important data than they ever had in the past. 
And on the one hand, I think the Chinese government recognizes that they're not trying to kill the golden goose and stop d- development of, of self-driving cars or turn turn the sort of dynamism of the Alibabas and Tencents into the world of like into sort of boring state-owned enterprises. But at the same time, I think the government, the Chinese government, has been tempted by the possibility that there is better governance and, and sort of better surveillance, and that there's this giant pool of data which they want cleaner, more straightforward access to, as well as worried of worried that sort of sensitive data could leak abroad and and wouldn't be secured in the appropriate way. Layered onto that, of course, the sort of consumer privacy protection issues, um, which are resonating all around the world of sort of people becoming more focused on having their data secured one way or another. And while it's the sort of legal protections that you end up having as a consumer, if the government wants your data, is very different from what you could expect in a US or EU context. At the same time, there are plenty of Chinese consumers which are fed up with perceived abuses of firms sort of selling and trading or, or making you know, pricing decisions or what have or, ba- or, or what have you based on their data, which the government is, is keen to rein in. So I think the draft, the, the regulations which were promulgated, both the overall ones as well as the ones specific to the auto sector, are reflecting all of those concerns and should be more viewed in the context of domestic Chinese regulators trying to balance all of those programs as opposed to some big scary thing which is motivated by great power competition. So I'm guessing, I think you can reconcile these things. The data protection approach that the European Union has taken and which China has imitated, I've criticized for 20 years as basically making sure that everybody Every company is in violation of the law. The, the law is so vague and so demanding at a level of principle that uh, the regulator can always find a violation. I think that's a bug. But if I were she, I'd think it was a feature, right? The European Union has said, we'd like to hand you a tool that you can use to bring to heel your entire tech sector pretty much uh, anytime you like, sort of like uh, the anti-bribery and increasingly the anti-trust uh, laws that China has adopted. They turn out to be terrific opportunities for almost law-free application of penalties on people who've gotten out of line. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I think you actually want to look like one level below Xi thinking about it if you want to sort of do the political economy way. I mean, the the Chinese government has plenty of ways to bring uh, tech firms to heel. As you said, you can always find someone cheating on taxes. You can always, anti-corruption has now been applied to things that are not strict anti-corruption. So what I would, the the frame I would um, also apply to it from that perspective is like, it is a cool prestigious thing if you're a Chinese bureaucracy to be able to have fights with Alibaba and Tencent and win. So the the sort of like cyber like the cyberspace folks and the and the data regulation folks they see the these anti monopoly guys having all this fun, um, getting all these good headlines and getting praise from the public at, at large as well as uh, I'm sure sort of elite the, the state council and whatnot for real for sort of realizing broader political uh, Im- imperatives through their particular tool. So I imagine a part of this was the kind of data regulatory universe feeling emboldened and inspired to uh, step up to the plate and and bring the sort of bag of tricks that they were able to copy and paste uh, by and large from the Europeans into their specific context so that whenever the next push has, they can be part of the action. So I wondered about that bureaucracy that enforces the data protection rules. I thought I read someplace has 50 people in it. It's a tiny yeah. agency. 
how many people are devoted to still enforcing the increasingly meaningless uh, number of children you can have policies? It must be thousands. Oh, I mean, anti-monopoly has like a few hundred also. So so this is really where you get to the, where you get to the, as, as Stuart said, like you can't enforce all of this. So you're just going to, you're just going to pick your spots and you're going to lead and you're going to take your cues from, from up on high and direct your investigatory energies to wherever is sort of most sexy and controversial at the moment. So I, I I think that the, 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 the model that I, as I think about this, is the FTC, which can't possibly carry out its mission of stamping out consumer fraud across the nation and making sure that privacy expectations are met. And so their strategy is to pick a few high-profile fights and to pick them in areas that will expand the, the respect people have for the, for the FTC increase their budget and increase their turf. And when you think about what the Data Protection Authority in China is doing, it's very similar. Yeah, I mean, I, I was almost going to ignore your your China family planning reference, but I think there actually is a bit of a parallel because you're right. There are two ways of doing regulation. Either you you know cut off a few heads and hope that everyone else falls in line, or you do what China did for for decades in going down to the village level and making sure that for every 50 people, there was one person who was getting up in everyone's business and making sure that they weren't having a second kid. And if they did have that second kid, making sure that person got their tubes tied. So that's that's not the model that I think you're going to see in terms of tech regulation anytime soon. It is there is a bit of bottom up of like making sure that you have these the sort of CCP cells, I guess, or like party meetings and every in every firm so that when you want need to talk to someone on the inside who's sympathetic, you have a kind of bridge and a natural person to go between. But yeah, from looking at like a data policy perspective, they're not about to hire 500,000 people to make sure that every country is every company is up to snuff. I mean, like just. I just don't think the talent or the money is there to pay for all those uh, folks to enforce this type. All right. Well, completely without a segue, the last significant story I want to cover is the chairman of the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board in the U.S., Adam Klein, has produced a white paper, which is the product of a process that began over a year ago in which the P-Club asked people to offer views about how to reform the, the FISA process. And they went out and got a whole bunch, I think about 20 FISA applications and gave them a really close read. I looked at all of the paperwork and believe me, this is a lot of work to see whether the process could be improved. And this was all coming off of a inspector general report that suggested that there were systemic and serious mistakes in almost all of the FISA applications that the inspector general reviewed. So the PCOB decided to take another look at it and produce, I won't call it a, a mouse, but it is not a, a full-throated endorsement of what the inspector general said. It is not even a full PCLOB report. It's just the outgoing chairman. And it's a set of suggestions for how to improve things. I, Mike, Nick, what what did Adam Klein actually end up saying and what does it mean? Yeah, I think one of his biggest takeaways are was that these are very, uh, as you mentioned, time-consuming reviews, that these are voluminous applications, they have a lot of factual information, and it's not very well organized. And the world got to see one of these for the first time with the Carter Page Fives application, and it wasn't pretty. As you mentioned, 
there, at least in the unclassified version of, of Adam's report, there aren't any any smoking guns. It, it, it doesn't seem that he found uh, the same level of factual error that the IG found with respect to the, the Carter Page application. But this process could just be a lot I, can better. I, can I stop you? I, I can just, let me just stop you there because I, 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 I think he actually probably ratifies what the National Security Division itself found, which is they said, we got very upset about what the Inspector General said, there were errors all over, and we went back and looked at all of them, and we only found two errors that might have made a difference in what the judge ruled, and a lot of typos and mistakes, but nothing that was really serious. He seems right, to but buy the, the cost of ensuring that level of accuracy to have the, the DOJ National Security Division attorneys go through every factual assertion in the applications, it's just a, an extremely high administrative cost. And they're not uh, staffed to do that for every FISA application, especially not if the number of FISA applications starts increasing over time. Right right now, we're talking, I think he mentioned that they did these completeness reviews for 95 applications. It's not clear to me that NSD could actually, could actually carry out the number of reviews if you were to have five times as many applications that they had. Nick, what did you think? I generally agree, but there are a couple of things to note. First of all, there was a lot of suggestions on how to better organize things for presentation that really should just be across the board for warrant applications and stuff like that, having read enough of those for fun. The other thing that is not really a red flag, but minor concern is this was only focused on the counterterrorism FISA applications. There was no counterintelligence applications. And, and that's a quirk of the PCLOB's mandate. Their, their statutory charter only extends to counterterrorism. But given the result of this, I think the intelligence community would be advised to have this same process applied to the counterintelligence as well, just as a good double check, because m we are protected by miles and miles of paperwork needed to do these applications. This Title III wiretap, all these things. And that is the barrier. And his suggestions were very much focused on ways of not making the paperwork burden less, but making the reading of the paperwork burden less. And so that would improve drastically the ability of the judges to make meaningful decisions that truly protect our liberties while still allowing legitimate espionage activities. I thought there was also a pretty useful focus. In this. On, on the whole, this is a very responsible and therefore kind of incremental look at FISA. And it goes out of its way to say the Congress acted irresponsibly in allowing the Section 215 authority to collect records to expire. And it, it's remiss right now in not uh, renewing that authority. But the interesting, and I thought, also useful focus was to say, look, when we decide that somebody is a agent of a foreign power because he's been hired by the foreign power, it's not really that big a civil liberties deal to reduce the paperwork burden and to have fewer reports and less frequent review. But when we go after a U.S. person, especially in a sensitive investigation that might involve somebody of the other party or an official or the news media, all of these protections 
need to be carried out in a very thoughtful way and in a way that lets the, the court see what's going on. That strikes me as a perfectly reasonable approach. And you need a report like this for NSD to be able to launch some of those and tell the judge, uh, the court, this is why we've changed our format. Yeah, I actually wish Adam had uh, made a slightly more full-throated version of that that argument, because really what we need to do is overhaul the FISA structure to create the bifurcation that you're talking about, Stuart, that Adam starts fleshing out in the white paper of the, the kinds of FISA applications that present significant privacy and civil liberties concerns. You mentioned applications involving political campaigns, the opposition party to the party that's in power, news media, religious organizations. That th those demand the highest level of scrutiny. And you have a whole set of other FISA applications that just frankly don't need that same level of scrutiny because the privacy and civil liberties concerns are, are much lower. And it's not to say that they should be in a scrutiny-free zone, just that it's a, it should be a different standard and a different process that applies for that second category. And right now we have the same process for everyone, which leads to, as you mentioned, a lot of paperwork where we don't need the paperwork and the misallocation of resources. If you let the NSD attorneys and the, the judges of the FISC focus in on the cases where there was the greatest potential for abuse, you'd have much better outcomes and streamline the process for the, the routine cases where there just aren't a lot of civil liberties. Yeah, I, 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 that makes sense. I, I was struck by the fact that we saw no sign that the uh, FISA court had any problems with the Carter Page uh, application, despite all the problems that were discovered later. So uh, they too must have been a little bit awed by the volume of stuff that was coming across their, their desk. Well, let's, let's, let's do two, a couple of quick stories. I, I would call this the ongoing tech decoupling movement, at least in the U.S. The FCC is moving to expand its ban on Chinese telecom equipment from government-funded telecom purchases to generally what U.S. telecom companies can buy. And the Fifth Circuit pretty much upheld the FCC's determination that Huawei will not be allowed to participate in some of these subsidized programs against a, a very strong or at least well-lawyered uh, challenge. Michael, what lessons do you draw from any of this? I think the biggest takeaway is that the FCC's recent action and also the circuit decision, both unanimous. This is an area where the Trump administration's approach of getting tough on, on China when it comes to telecommunications is carrying through. I know it's not the only one, the only area, but there's yet another instance where the Biden administration, where Democrats on the Hill and the Democratic appointees of the FCC see things the same way. And the road is not likely to get any easier for Huawei and ZTE going forward, which is a good thing for national security. Yeah, I think that we're going we're, we're gonna to see uh, the courts have been pretty open to challenges by companies like TikTok and WeChat and to the, the folks that challenged the military list. It's pretty clear if you work at it, you can get the courts on board here. The Fifth Circuit said, we wouldn't have upheld this if it was just the FCC's idea, but they clearly spent a lot of time talking to the executive branch that knows the security issues and based their decision in part on what they got from the executive branch. And on that basis, we're going to uphold it, which strikes me as a, about where you'd want the courts to be because the FCC on its own, a little bit scary. Uh, all right. Uh, and finally, uh, just so that everybody understands why there's this nervousness, 
Jordan, China has kicked butt in space the last week or two. Yeah, it's been a it's been a good run. We got some Tycho knots on the uh, Chinese space station. Some some exciting new launches. They're doing their thing. They're still five, ten, maybe fifteen years behind U.S. capabilities. And I think the kind of big breakthrough of uh, SpaceX and the and Starlink and sort of Falcon 9 and uh, having a, a reusable uh, launch vehicle is something that Chinese firms are not necessarily are still years away from from being able to pull off but and uh, but at the same time there's definitely been some real progress and following the sort of liberalization of Chinese space which initially since uh, up until 2014 was an entirely state-run thing. Watching the feedback loops between American private space progress and the sort of innovation and development which China is trying to push forward in their space system is really interesting. But talking back to telecom and and Huawei, right? At some point, a Chinese firm is going to have a Starlink-like internet telecom system. And it'll be really interesting to watch the the challenges that that firm faces as it tries to sell worldwide. So it occurs to me, I was thinking, why haven't the Chinese adopted the reusable launch and return booster system that SpaceX has adopted? And then it occurred to me that up to now, right until SpaceX started doing this, everybody who was paying the freight was really paying for missiles that were bound on a one-way trip. <laughs> Nobody drops off a nuclear weapon and then flies home again. And a lot of the money in these programs comes from folks who think that they want rockets. I, I, I don't know. We certainly have a lot of IC and Air Force satellites, now Space Force satellites uh, in, in orbit that it would have been nice to have used boosters to get up there and save the taxpayers a lot of money. But that gets to a, a broader discussion of how the, the defense contracting system is broken and how we end up having every project over budget and behind schedule. The thing to watch going forward on the rockets is SpaceX's other real innovation is more smaller engines and design the rocket to fail. It's the computer model these days. You use a lot of components and you assume that they're going to fail at some rate. You have 20 rockets and you... Yeah, or... More precisely, the Falcon 9, the reason it's called the Falcon 9 is it actually has nine engines on it. And any one of those can be shut off in flight and it will still succeed in the yeah. full mission. What, what's interesting, Nick, is you're seeing Chinese firms take very direct cues from stuff like the Falcon 9. So just a few days ago, there was some new company, Rocket Design, and it had eight on the outside and one on the inside. And this isn't necessarily because they've hacked into uh, SpaceX's computers and are copying designs, but here is a model which is clearly spectacularly successful. And it would be malpractice not to try to see if you can learn from, from the success that SpaceX has had. All right, Jordan, you get the last word. Thank you also to Nick and Michael for joining us. If you've got questions, comments, uh, send them to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. If Apple does not send you your episode promptly, please let us know. I think they're back on schedule. They've got their uh, system working again. Uh, and go uh, uh, go out and rate the show on uh, iTunes or elsewhere. We always enjoy reading people's reviews, and we read them sometimes on the program if they're entertaining enough. Thanks also to South Weissman Sound Design for our music. This has been episode 367 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson.